Good morning and Merry Christmas, family. If you're, if you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And today we continue on in week three of our Advent series called His Name Will Be. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, and today we'll read just verse 6. As if I could put a just in there, because there's so much in verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your Word. Your name and your power are transcendent. Let, Let them transcend our thoughts in a way that presses down and, and displaces any doubt or fear or anxiety this Christmas season for your people, Lord. Lord, most of us that have gone about spiritually bankrupt and just busy have done so not just because of what we do or what we fail to do, but because of how often we, we fail to receive what you've done and to receive all of who you are, to welcome the mystery of who you are into our spaces. And I pray that you'd give us supernatural grace to welcome you, Jesus, in all that you are in name and power and character and person. Welcome you into our place that there would be a new power of light and darkness that we experience and feel and that draws our neighbors and coworkers and family and friends deeper into the light with us. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen. I want to review a little bit of this chapter. The ninth chapter of Isaiah starts out, especially in verse 2, with this crazy promise of light. And the context was utter darkness. It was a dark time in Israelite history. It's 7th century BC, so 700 years, around 700 years before the coming of this light, this child, as verse 6 says. But light is promised. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw Isaiah underline that light is promised to people walking in darkness. That's the context. Light doesn't just come into a place where it's just a little bit less light. People are kind of pretty much good people. No, light is promised to people walking in darkness. These people have seen a great light. And to underline the scandal of it all, he repeats himself. A people walking in deep darkness on them, on us undeserving people, light has shown. This is speaking of a hopeless People, a people like us who've surrendered because of sin, selfishness, we've, we've surrendered any sort of rights we can claim 
on hope, any demands that we could make for hope, on us, the thrill of hope. And a weary world rejoices as the song goes. A world made weary by our own selfishness is surprised with this hope that overwhelms anxiety and fear and gloom. This is the promise that's delivered 700 years after it's given. And we rejoice. We rejoice in a child that's given. That's how this light promise is fulfilled. A child that's given who also happens to be God. Or to put it the other way around, we rejoice that God comes to the earth in the most unexpected and humble way possible by being born to us as a little baby, as verse 6 says. He puts on human frailty and weakness, adding divinity to his humanity, as St. Augustine once declared and pointed out. I love how he puts it like that. Or in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, my favorite Christmas hymn, Consider these words, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail, the incarnate deity. And allow those words to blow your mind and fill your heart with light. This mystery of God coming to us, revealing his strength through the weakness of humanity and growing in humanity to overwhelm our weakness with his joy and strength and holiness. So we're examining, examining this mystery, this glorious paradox of how the Messiah comes into the world, the incarnation. We are unpacking the four names that are given here in the sixth verse of Isaiah chapter 9. So the first week we examine the mystery of how he is wonderful counselor, Last week, Alberto preached about how he is mighty God. Remember, this child is mighty God. I kind of picture how awkward it must have been for Mary checking in the, the baby Jesus into kids' church or kids' synagogue, right? Go to the, goes to the kids' registration table. Uh, what's the child's name? Oh, uh, his name's Mighty God. The baby? Yeah, Mighty God. Probably gets a weird look from the person checking, it, person checking him in. Prints out the sticker. There you go. Slaps it on his back. There you go, mighty God. Turns out he was. It's just a crazy mystery that a child is born mighty God. Now today, we're going to examine the mystery of how the promised child, the son, also bears the name everlasting father. So intimately representing, so perfectly representing the person of the Father, that he bears his name for us. Now, to unpack this mystery carefully, which we need to do, carefully unpack this mystery of how the Son bears the name of the Father while still coming distinctly to the earth as the Son sent from the Father, I want to go to John chapter 10 and hear what Jesus says about this mystery, how he came in unity with the Father, and yet sent distinctly from the Father. Now, most of our time is going to be spent here in John chapter 10, and then we'll come back to Isaiah 9 in, to, to consider the, the word everlasting in light of what we learn in John 10 about how Jesus represents the Father. So can you keep your finger in Isaiah 9, 
keep one finger there or the bookmark or something, and you can turn to John chapter 10. Now, I, it, it, first few times I read through the Bible, it's the, the New Testament, kind of towards the back of the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the fourth account of the same one gospel of Jesus' life on earth. I've been a Christian for 22 years. I've read the Bible from front to back maybe 16 to 20 times. And there are things that I'm about to preach about that I've seen in John 10 for the very first time. I've probably read through John many more times than I've read the Bible. And there's things here that I didn't have the context to see that I'm excited to see God make clear to us and show us how it relates to experiencing the power of the Father through the work of the Son this Christmas season. Amen? So John 10, we'll start with verses 22 through 24. We'll just go along partway through the chapter. So it says this, verse 22, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. I want to pause there. First thing to note is how specific this part of John chapter 10 is. It's so much like the New Testament. There are verifiable things that are stated exactly where Jesus was walking. You can architecturally go confirm the parts of the temple that was there at the time. There are things, details in the New Testament that are given that can either prove true or untrue certain claims in the Bible. And this is one of those verifiable moments where these parts of the descriptions of the temple were accurate. And Jesus, during the Feast of Dedication, in the winter, all these details are important, is walking in the temple, and they say, why are you keeping us in suspense? Just tell us if you're the Messiah. Now, to be clear, there was no suspense. There was just perceived suspense. It's what I call a battle of messianic assumptions. So often when you, when you hear people's reasoning for why they, they don't serve God, it's not the... the the arguments they give you, it's the assumptions that they make that are underneath the surface. And that's what kept me from God so often. It was assumptions about what I thought God wasn't able to do for me before I served the Lord. In other words, for them, for these people pursuing Jesus, that John just calls them the Jews, they're Jewish leaders. For them, it wasn't that Jesus had not made himself plain as the Messiah, it's that he wasn't fulfilling their skewed expectations of what they thought the Messiah was supposed to be based on their flawed viewpoint of what he was supposed to do. And I say, church, we so often miss God like this. So often God's promised, his promise is right in front of us and right in front of your face, and yet you miss it because he's not fulfilling your expectations. And it's not a lack of what God's doing. It's a misunderstanding where your expectations aren't aligned with the word of God. 
and the promise that he gives. We all have blind spots in our understandings of, of what God is to do in our life. We think he's, he, he's supposed to keep us from suffering, for instance. I want to say a few things about blind spots really quick. If we knew what our blind spots were, they would no longer be blind spots, right? So we need the Holy Spirit to help see that. And I'm going to be more specific. We specifically need the Holy Spirit working in a church. We, we can't just see our own blind spots by reading the Bible on our own, as much as that's important, listening to sermons on our own. We need the rest of the people that also have the Holy Spirit that are operating in spiritual disciplines. We need the Holy Spirit and other people to help us to see our blind spots, even when it hurts our feelings a little bit. Now, you don't have to wait for growth groups to start back up again in the middle of January, the end of January, to practice being intentional about other people that you pray with and you confess sin to. We can do this in any season, but we need the Holy Spirit in other people walking in unity with us to be able to see the blind spots where our expectations don't align with God's promise, lest we miss out on the power of God because we're pursuing some lesser thing, okay? Blind spot, little side thing, done. I'm going to keep moving on. Let's specifically consider the blind spot of these people coming to Jesus, confronting Jesus with the expectations of Messiah that they thought he wasn't making. Now, it's really important to see the first few words of our passage because they're key in understanding the blind spots of these first century Jewish people. It says, at the time of the feast of the dedication took place at the temple. Everyone say dedication. The Hebrew word for to dedicate is the root word where we get our word, where you've heard this word, Hanukkah. So this feast of dedication was Hanukkah. The temple was restored and rededicated almost 200 years before this. And thus the feast of dedication, Hanukkah, was instituted in the year 165 B.C., by Judas Maccabeus. Many of y'all have heard the, of the Maccabeans. His brothers, the, the Judas Maccabeus brothers, led a revolt against the Greco-Roman leader Antiochus Epiphanes. This was the, the precursors to the, the Roman state. And they were essentially taking the nationhood away from Israel And these people, the Maccabeans, led a revolt against the Roman people. And temporarily, they had restored the altar sacrifice and rededicated the temple a few hundred years before Jesus came. And in in the Jews' mind at the time, this was the type of Messiah that was to come. It was people that would overthrow Rome in a revolt. And so their mindset was this. It says it was the winter. The month of Kislev is when the Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication was celebrated. Now, why am I highlighting a bunch of festival history? Is it just because, oh, well, we're we're in a Christmas season. Let's kind of relate to John a little bit. No. It's because John thought it was important to put these details into the Bible 
so that he could provide context about the expectations about the Messiah. So that when Jesus responded and said, this is who I am, and this is my relationship with the Father, it could be very clearly revealed what the misunderstanding about who he was supposed to be would manifest in the people that he was reaching out to. And so often, it's our misunderstanding about what God's supposed to do that's the biggest barrier of allowing him to do what he wants to do in our life. Compare Jesus to Judas Maccabeus. To say that he was a different kind of Messiah would be a huge understatement because he was a different paradigm of what a leader and a Messiah and a Savior was supposed to be. Fully in line with the promise that was 700 years before, but not quite in step with the anxious awaiting a few centuries in the making against Rome. Just compare the difference. The Maccabeans revolted against Rome while Jesus taught his followers to revolt against their own sin inside of them, all while respecting and, and revering the rulers like Rome. The Maccabeans took up arms while Jesus turned his cheek and laid down his life. The Maccabeans triumphed, albeit very briefly, while Jesus transformed. The Maccabeans won through external force while Jesus showed his victory through the rebirthing of people internally. So there was no suspense. When they said, why do you keep us in suspense? Let me underline, there was no suspense. Jesus was plainly fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And with miraculous power, confirming his works, he just wasn't meeting their expectations. And again, it's a solemn warning to us that when we think God's not moving, maybe we just don't see how he's moving. When we think God is being fuzzy, maybe it's us that's seeing things fuzzy because of something that is wrong with us and God can heal. So moving on, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you plainly enough that I'm the Messiah and You don't believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. So first of all, these first verses, Jesus doesn't just say that he's the Messiah. He demonstrates with power, with miraculous grace He demonstrates that he's the Messiah by dying for our sin and raising again from the dead, which I dare say is probably history's greatest and most important miracle and probably the most verifiable miracle. The best explanation for why Christianity, despite all the impossibilities of its spreading in the history of the world, and especially the first few centuries, the best explanation of of why it spread so fast is because the 500 eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus as a resurrected man after his public execution actually saw him. And therefore, they were willing to die for it. And that's why it spread so fast. Jesus confirmed. He doesn't just say, I already answered. He says, my life, the works that I do, the miracles also answer for themselves. But then he goes on to say, verse 26, you do not believe 
because you are not among my sheep. So Jesus is helping these people to see you who think that you're religiously elite, that you're extra respected by God, you're not just as high up as you think you are. No, you're actually far off. And so Jesus is declaring, you're far off. But what's amazing is, as the chapter draws to an end, you can kind of peek ahead. He's telling those people, you're far off. But despite their enmity, he's drawing them to come near, which is amazing. And I want to underline these two things. Let's consider both Jesus' clarifying rebuke, kind of in your face, you're not so hot. And also, his passionate invitation to his enemies, First, he has to make clear that they're far off because in order to invite someone inside the house of God, if you will, you have to clarify you're on the outside. This is so important in ministry in the United States, and especially here in Texas, where we can live under the misunderstanding, well, I kind of memorized half of a Bible verse, kind of got it mixed up with you know, doesn't the Bible say, you know, God helps those who help themselves or something? I, I, I memorized that verse. It's like in 7th Corinthians or something. It's like we, we've been to church a few times and we think we know God. And God needs to declare, at least this is what happened in my life. I was uh, a really religious man. I labored through a few church services. And, uh, and I thought myself pretty righteous because I, I kind of had a Bible that was kind of on my bedside, and every once in a while I'd poke it, uh, you know, and I'd, and I tried to say sorry for the things that I had no intention or power of changing, and so I thought, oh, I'm, I'm good, I know God, and as I came to be drawn by God through a campus ministry, students preaching to me, I had to first see that I didn't know God, that I was on the outside of faith, And that had to be clear to me before I could clearly be drawn to the inside and to come to know God. In church, for us to be effective today, the Holy Spirit can use us to show people that they're missing something. And with God's help, I told you this is tricky, with God's help, our clarity that we bring to people will not end in judgment that they're far off, but a powerful invitation to come near. Like I said, we need the Holy Spirit's help, and he gives us the power to do this. Now, check out how Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees here, and he was clarifying, you are far off. But the tone of the whole causation of their problem wasn't that you're far off and I'm condemning you, stay away. But he was pleading with them to come near. He wasn't saying you're far off because you don't do enough for God. He wasn't saying you're far off because you're not religious or sincere enough. He was saying you're far off. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. And then he says, basically, I am God. I'm the son of God. And if you believe in me, you'll be of my sheep. It says they took up stones to stone him. That's when you think, okay, these, these people are trying to kill Jesus now. Now he has the right to like 
officially condemn, condemn them and send them away. But Jesus used this confrontational element, like what's inside of you, the enmity that's inside of you. Oh, man, it's coming up now. You're getting angry. I just triggered something. And he used that as a context to draw them near. He said, you can read on, if you don't believe in me, at least believe on the account of the works. In essence, he wants them to at least like have a seed of faith so that I can draw you in. He is drawing in his enemies. No one like Jesus has the power to draw his enemies. And this is a message to all of us. Jesus doesn't just save his friends. Jesus rescues his very enemies. There is no other gospel like this. It's a beautiful scandal. I'm amazed by it in small ways and try to represent it in small ways. Let me tell you kind of one small beans fantasy dream I had about how God would use me to reach his enemies. About 10 years ago, our, uh, our oldest was the, the only baby we had at the time. She was about one. And my wife and I were in our house. It was late at night. And I heard like the, the, what sounded to me in the middle of the night, like a, a, a door opening and like the lock being unlocked. And I, I, then I heard it shut and it relocked. And I went out there and I didn't know if I was just dreaming Well, the next day we found that one of our cars had been broken into. And the only thing that we could see was missing is a a house key that we had forgot and left in the car, which you shouldn't do. Don't leave your house keys outside in your car, right? Well, the task, of course, that day, well, Ken, we need to change our locks now, obviously. And we didn't get around to it to that day. That day we didn't get around to changing the locks. So my wife went up to stay with our oldest daughter at our in-laws house. And I stayed in the house right inside the door on an air mattress, just kind of ready. Right? So I was super stoked about this. Right? I'm like, Oh God, this is a chance to show like your love to, to your enemies. So here's what I did. I put my shotgun right next to the bed, (laughs) right next to the door. I put a Bible and a a roll of duct tape. So here's my plan. He's going to come in. I'm going to cock, I'm going to cock that baby. And I'm going to give him clear instructions. Get the duct tape, feet first. See, I had it all worked out in my mind. Get your feet first, and then I'm going to help you with your hands, right? And then we're going to have us a Bible study for a while. I got to train this new missionary for prison ministry, baby. I had it all worked out in my mind. The only problem is dude never came back. See, I had a fantasy about reaching my enemy. But Jesus is standing before his enemies who literally have rocks in their hands. They're about to kill him. And look, he knew. These are the same people that tortured and killed him. The same people that he he, he could have been like, dude, ah, that hurts. There's a nail, a rusty nail being driven through my carpal ligament here. He was more concerned about the heart of his torturers. God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus has compassion, draws his enemies. He clarifies, you are not of my sheep, but he's inviting them. He's pleading them to come and draw near. Let's carry on. Verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them 
this amazing promise that he's accentuating. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. It's amazing. Jesus is saying that the enemy himself has no power to snatch or take us or those who are truly his sheep away from God. Whether you're an enemy who knows you're an enemy and he draws you in, nothing in your past, no enmity, sin in your past can cause the enemy any grounds of accusation to snatch you out of the hand of Jesus that's locked on you. That's what he's saying. This word snatch, the English word that we see in a lot of our translations, snatch, it comes from the original word that Jesus spoke in Greek is harpezo, which means to pluck, to catch up, to take by force. No one can take you by force out of the hand of God. This word is where we get our word harpoon. Consider that for a second. The enemy cannot sink a vital hook into a true believer. He can't hook us and take us away from God. And let the security of that give you a rest this holiday season. But consider that this same word is also used on the, on the other way around. This, this word harpezo is used in the positive to give us imperative with not only what we are protected from the enemy by God in, but also the authority that we're given from God against the enemy to wage war. This same word is used in the positive when talking about the power available to us. Jude 22 and 23. Jesus' brother Jude says this, this command, and have mercy on those who doubt. Maybe those who think that the enemy is harpooning them into unbelief, right? Have mercy on them. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We are to be so aggressive with other people, with blind spots, with, with, when we are given into temptation. You're not just supposed to suggest, hey, maybe you shouldn't mess around with that person. We have the power and the authority to harpoon people with faith and protection and love and joy. Consider the security of God, the power he's given us. We have the power to do to the enemy what he has no power to do to us. He cannot snatch us out of God's hand. And we are given the, the, the grace to snatch others out of his hand. If only we knew the power and authority that we have as children of God, I don't think we'd be so anxious and stirred up by lesser things, lesser worries and busynesses, if that's a word. I don't think we'd allow fear and danger of darkness to override our thinking, we'd be more aware to, of our power, authority, anointing, and command to be dangerous to the darkness. We wouldn't just allow our lives to be, oh, try your best not to sin. No, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. The overcoming life, the dangerous disciple kind of life, we'd see more clearly with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 29, this reiteration in light of the Father. So check this out. My Father, he goes on, Jesus, who has given these sheep to me. So remember, check check it out. Pause for a second. The sheep are given from the Father to who? To Jesus. So Jesus has the sheep, right? Okay. Jesus has the sheep. Picture that. My Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Wait a minute. I thought the Father gave the sheep to Jesus. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to kill him. Now, first of all, there's no ambiguity with Jesus' claim to divinity. Jesus was claiming to be God here. No one has ever doubted this. I've heard silly things before. Oh, Jesus hasn't claimed to be God. Jesus all over the New Testament claims to be God, and this is one really clear place. He wasn't just, it wasn't just a general reference to being a, you know, a child of God. No, he's claiming to be the eternal divine son of God here. In fact, to, to further clarify, a few chapters before, John 5, this was why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the, the Jewish leaders were clear on what Jesus was claiming. They just didn't see how right and mysteriously true his claim was. Now, secondly, let's consider this mystery that Jesus has just said, the father has given the sheep over to me and no one can snatch them from my hand. And then he goes on to say, no one can snatch them from my father's hand. And we have to think, are are these people, these sheep in Jesus' hand or the father's? Jesus, you must be confused. Can you stand up for a second, brother? See, we all know that God came as a Mexican because otherwise, why would they call him Jesus, right? So this is kind of how the father and son work. Now, I don't have a Holy Spirit here just... Imagine he's here. He's he's here somehow, right? But this is how the the oneness of the father and the son work. So, see what I did? I called, I called her to grab his hand. Now look, no one can snatch Jessica from Jesus' hand. I called her to be in the hand of Jesus. And no one can snatch her from my hand, the Father's hand. Well, which is it? It's both. Thank you. You guys can be seated. I thought that demonstration was going to be a lot more effective, but let it be effective, Lord, in our minds. (laughs) Listen, the Father and the Son are one. He says, I am and the Father are one. There are so many ways that this is true. They're one in character. They're one in their divine attributes. Now, we need to be clear. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's not saying we're the same. There is a a really old heresy called modalism, where they believed there is 
one God and one person, and he just kind of changes modes. Like he was God the Father in eternity past, and then for a little brief moment, he kind of like did like one of those Marvel comic like like person switches, or I guess X-Men, I guess it would be, sorry. And he kind of became a different person, and then he kind of morphed into the Holy Spirit for a minute. And No, that is heresy. The mystery is that he is three persons, one God, eternally, eternally. And our minds need to, to imagine what it would be like to be perfectly united in character, in attributes, in ministry. And one of the things that Jesus shows here that, is that his unity with the Father is most clearly seen in how he holds his former enemies made sons and daughters. And how no one can snatch them from their hand. He wanted to make sure you knew that. We ask, are, are you really the Messiah? He knows that we're misunderstood with our expectations and our anxiety about how he's supposed to move in our life. And the very thing that he wants us to see and what unites him to the Father is that no one can take you away from me. I and the Father are one. So the Jews thought that Jesus was kind of veiling himself. You know, you're keeping us in suspense. But it wasn't Jesus veiling himself, so much like our ongoing struggle today. We allow sin to blind us from what is otherwise plain. Jesus was sent from the Father. He is the eternal Son who was always one with the Father, united with the Father, distinct from the Father, never created, always begotten from eternity past. He had no beginning. Jesus' very mouth spoke the word world into existence, and at a moment in time, he entered his own creation, much like a painter entering her own painting. And he came to us to save humanity from the inside out, to snatch us out of the fire so that we could be held by him and the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. And this brings us back to this word, everlasting. Let's go back and consider, in this context, Isaiah 9. Jesus is sent to the earth to bring light and to show distinctly who the everlasting Father is by bearing his name. And he is not just Father. The Heavenly Father is not just Father. He's everlasting Father. You want to know what the Heavenly Father is like? Well, what's heaven like? What's heaven like? What's Jesus like? Forever and ever and ever, Jesus shows us In fact, one of the ways that he shows his everlasting power to us is right before he ascends to be with the Father, he tells us, go and make disciples of all the world. He didn't say, go make church attenders. He didn't just say, go make believers. He said, go make disciples, which requires a type of commitment and sacrifice and adventure that we need to allow God to enlarge us for. And yet he says, the accompanying promise is, lo, I will be with you even to the end of the ages. That's pretty everlasting right there. He's the everlasting Savior who represents the same inability to abandon us that the Heavenly Father shows. 
In fact, remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy right before Moses died. And it was reiterated by the writer of Hebrews. Be strong and courageous. But listen, for the Lord God, your God goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Some of us here have suffered forsaking. We've suffered abandonment in various forms. And God knows this. God wants to make sure that his voice, his promise, speaks louder than your pain. He says, your pain and your sorrow, even your own sin, it's all a big mess and it's very real. But he says, listen, child, it's, it's temporary. My love is everlasting. Everlasting love is who I am, the father says. He says, I am the everlasting father. I've shown you this through my son, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And how does Jesus certify this promise most powerfully in a way that silences any sort of fear that that we'd be abandoned? Any sort of fear that we'd be forsaken? Jesus certifies this promise in blood. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we would never have to be. He suffered on the cross in order to appease once and for all God's righteous wrath and to remove any barriers from us experiencing the Father's everlasting love. Right before he went to the cross, he, the night before he was he was very clearly meditating on the work he would have to do. Would he, would he be forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be? He said he sweat blood over this. But listen, Jesus made up his mind about you. Nothing will ever change his mind. And as he calls you to remember how he made up his mind, He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Because he knows that we're a little bit more forgetful than he is. We tend to change our mind with doubt. And he's saying, I'll never change my mind about you. And I want you to, before you try to to go do stuff for me, I want you to rest in me and be held. Would you stand to your feet with me, please?